I have been angry at leadership. We can be angry at leadership, meaning you could maybe mad at me right now. The times that I've been angry at, at leadership is not when they fail, not when they've made bad decisions, even though I didn't like it. The times that I've been angry with leaders in my life, the most, the angriest, is when they confront me in my sin and speak true to me and point out something that's going on and they're dead on. And I just, I feel that anger, that defensiveness. Maybe I keep a straight face, but internally I'm saying choice words, specific words, angry words. Just feel like I, I could... I could bake bread in this chest right now. It's so hot. Like, it, it is on fire. I say that to say, <laughs> to warn you, I expect we'll get angry this morning. So, welcome. Grace and peace to you. But also, you may get angry. You may get angry. James 3. James 3. There's an outline to this passage that I want you to see just to, to stick with me. But the first thing you'll see is the warning to people who desire to teach. The warning to people who desire to teach. This is first two verses. James 3. If you have your Bible, Mary, what page was it again? Do you correct? 1072. If you need a Bible, take that Bible. It's our gift to you. We want you to have a copy of God's Word here, there, everywhere. James 3, verse 1. Not many should become teachers, my brothers. Because you know that we will receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is mature. Able also to control the whole body. And so he starts with this specific. Now, many of us start from general in our conversations and we get to specific. He starts with this specific and he's going to go general more into the tongue for everyone. But he starts with this specific to teachers. It's a weighty responsibility to be a teacher of God's word. Like, I feel it. I feel it now. I feel it every week leading up to Sunday. I'm going to preach. It's weighty. Now, you've got, you've got two kind of different uh, gifts in the body. You see in 1 Corinthians, there's many gifts, but you see the prophet who's going to communicate to the family revelations from God, but that's not the teacher. The teacher is the one who expounds God's word, that opens up God's word, expounds it, explains it, applies it, says, hey, this is what God is saying here. So conveying God's word to God's people, it's a big deal. It's a weighty responsibility. Uh, uh, the equivalent in James' day is the rabbi. That, so the teacher in the early Christian church, uh, the, the closest parallel that they would have is the rabbi. And what did the rabbi in Jewish culture have? A lot of prestige. And so then the teacher in the Christian church is tempted to have a lot of prestige early on. So you can understand that there's a lot of people saying, hey, man, I, I, and especially in these communities you're talking about, it seems like they're poor, they're struggling, they have some internal conflict, but there's some of that, hey, I'm going to ascend the ladder and be a teacher, and I'll get prestige in that. And he's saying, whoa, whoa, not many of you should be teachers. If you go down to verse 13, it seems that he's alluding to uh, arrogance in the leaders of the church. You'll see it actually through the next chapter, end of this chapter and chapter 4. So some, there's arrogance for current leaders, definitely possible Arrogance for potential leaders, potential teachers. Now, we are a seminary city. And so we have a lot of people who want to lead, who want to teach. But we need to heed James' warning. 
you will receive a stricter judgment. Because your ministry involves speaking, talking, and the tongue is the hardest part of the body to control, you open yourselves up to greater danger of judgment. Teachers talk a lot, right? Like some people ask me on Sunday afternoons, like, man, we're talking, you're not really talking much. I'm like, I talked so much this morning, I'm done. Like that was it. I capped. I mean, today, today by 9 p.m., I'm going to fall out because we have a membership class after this, and then we have redemption groups tonight, and I'm teaching all three, and it's going to be like too much. But, but what I want you to see is I'm going to sin today. I'm going to sin today. Proverbs 10, 19 says this. When there are many words, sin is unavoidable. It's going to happen. I'm not looking forward to it. I'm not like expecting. I'm not like trying to. I'm just saying it's unavoidable. So teachers talk a lot, which means they can sin very easily and lead people astray. Now, if you feel really called to teach God's word, you need to know the weight of this call. James is not trying to talk you out of your calling, but he's pressing the seriousness of this calling and warning those who feel like they have the calling, but really what they're driven by is not calling from God, but selfish ambition, impure motives. So those that are called, he's not trying to push them away and say, hey, no, he's, I want you to feel the weight of this. And then those who have selfish ambition, he say, no, don't. Something needs a change in your heart before you keep pursuing this path. You want prestige? You want the spotlight? You want people to, to look at you and see you? Greater judgment is coming you. No. Be wary. Be careful. Be cautious. And then he says, we all stumble in many ways. That means we sin in many different ways. But if we don't stumble in what we say, we're mature. That's a big statement. That's a massive statement. Because he says... If we're able to control what we can say, we're mature and able also to control the body. So just to rephrase that, self-control with our tongue means self-control with the rest of our life. But when our tongue is not restrained, even though it's small, the rest of the body is most likely going to be undisciplined and uncontrolled as well. So if, if you have a kind of wild, undisciplined life, I think some wisdom for everyday life here is don't start with the treadmill. Start with your tongue. If you can make ground in here, if you can grow in this, it's going to affect the rest of your life. Because undisciplined tongues equals undisciplined lives. So welcome. That's the first two verses. He keeps going. What he's saying already is just our words have enormous impact. Have an enormous impact. You've got to see this. Your words have an enormous impact. So much so that Jesus said, you're not going to get away the judgment at the end with all your careless words. They're all going to be accounted for. Because why? Because that's how big of a deal your words are. And so we may be like, well, James is making too big a deal of this. Maybe speaking uh, with, with hyperbole, this is exaggeration. And James is wiser than you because he's empowered by the Spirit to write this. And he anticipates your objection and he hits it in verse 3. Talking about the incredible power of the tongue. Now, if we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we direct their whole bodies. 
And consider ships, though they're very large and driven by fierce winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So too, though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things. Consider how a small fire sets ablaze a large forest. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among our members. It stains the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. So he's saying is, there's these small items that control large vehicles. There's these tiny bits that we put in a horse's mouth that are able to steer a thousand pound horse. A rudder, a tenth the size of a ship, is able to turn the ship east. And a little muscle in our mouth turns the course of our life. It steers us, turns us. It boasts great things. It has incredible power. That's his point. It has incredible power. Just like that rudder has the power to turn the entire ship. Just like that bit has the power to turn that powerful, massive horse. The tongue has this incredible power. And if you didn't get that from the visual of the horse and the ship, James paints a picture of forest fires, a raging, destructive fire that burns up thousands of acres of land. But it started with a little spark. It started with maybe a cigarette. It started with maybe a tiny campfire that didn't get put out. A tiny spark moved towards, grew into this destructive, raging force. And he's saying, that's the tongue. A tiny thing that will wreak havoc, destroying lives, ruining reputations, crushing people's spirits. The tongue is a fire. And like every camper, RVer, Boy Scout knows, a controlled campfire is awesome. It is. It, it typically produces s'mores. Mmm, campfires are legit, but an uncontrolled campfire is dangerous. Untamed fire is destructive. And he's saying the tongue is a fire. Now, if you think about this, or to kind of get some imagery of how destructive uh, and powerful the tongue is, uh, Pastor Matt, his childhood home burned down uh, in this fire in the Eastland area that was, it, it went for 30 miles and it was wide as six miles at times. It burned up 50 homes, 100 outbuildings, uh, thousands of bales of hay, a ton of cattle. Uh, no one died in the fire. They were able to all get out, but, but it just destroyed so much. Farm equipment. Wildlife. Almost eradicating an entire community called Kokomo out there in Eastland. So James is trying to press the point, if we haven't got it yet, fire can be powerfully destructive. And the tongue can be powerfully destructive. Powerfully destructive. Proverbs 16.27 puts it this way. A worthless person digs up evil. And his speech is like a scorching fire. A scorching fire. Just burning people around you. Burning relationships. 
burning families, burning community groups, burning your coworkers. It's a scorching fire. And then James says, it's a world of unrighteousness. So you see the powerful, destructive nature of it in fire, but then he says, it's also a world of righteousness. It stains the whole body, sets the course of life on fire. So it doesn't just happen now and burn for, you know, uh, uh, two hours until the, the fire department gets there. It sets the whole course of life. We're talking about burning hot now and burning long for decades. And it is itself set on fire by hell. And so he's saying the tongue is the most difficult part of the body to control. And it expresses all the evil in the world around us and in us. Like this is the conduit that expresses all the evil in the world around us and the evil in us. Where, where John Calvin, he, he writes, A slender portion of flesh contains the whole world of iniquity. It, this is, it's easy to be against the evil out there, right? It's, it's easy to say, look at that, look at that, look at that, look at that. Look at this person. Look what they believe now. Look at what they're trying to push in this agenda. <laughs> but James is saying, it's right here. It's easy to keep pointing out there. James is saying, hey, point right here. Point right here. Point right here. Your tongue is a world of iniquity. You can talk about a city like Las Vegas and, and get the nomenclature or the, the title Sin City and, and, and what James is saying. Yeah, there's this whole city of sin. And what I'm saying is your whole tongue is sin. A world, not a city of sin. It's a world of sin. Your tongue is. Jesus gets at this in Matthew 15. Listen and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. He goes down to verse 18, but what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart, and this defiles a person, for from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, slander. This is what defiles us. Or as James puts it, it corrupts us, it stains our whole being. So our, our tongues, family, are incredibly powerful to degrade, to demonize, to destroy others, and incredibly powerful to defile ourselves. And if you remember, recall, or I'll remind you or tell you that, that this connects with what he said in chapter 1, that this uncontrolled tongue that stains your whole being actually destroys true religion because true religion is caring for widows, looking after orphans, and what? Keeping yourself unstained from the world. So much so that he went on and said, your religion is useless if you can't control your tongue. It's in vain. There's no benefit to it. 
And then he says, it's energized by the fire of hell. This is where maybe you start getting a little hot internally. If not so, thus far. Meaning, the power of Satan himself, the chief resident of hell, gives to the tongue its great destructive potential. In this rebuke, the Holy Spirit is telling us if we don't control our tongues, they're empowered by hell. Our words are destructive. He made that clear with the fire. And he's also saying our words are demonic. Our words are destructive because they're demonic. Empowered by, energized by hell. A world of iniquity empowered by hell. Let's get specific. Lies. Slander. Gossip. Ridicule. Harsh sarcasm. The jocular put-downs of the locker room that were just shame and ridicule. Discouraging. Calling names. Insulting. Demonic. That's what they are. All of them. It's demonic. These fires will burn down your life like that fire burned down Matt's home. These fires will burn down our church like a fire burns a piece of paper. Burn it up. Consume it. Destroy it. Because they're destructive and demonic. And if you, you want to think about this, uh, what, what do we mean by demonic? Well, it's energized by the power of hell, but just go back to the deceptive and cunning words of the devil himself. And so Genesis begins with, in the beginning, God created. He speaks the world into existence by the power of his word. And then by his word, he instructs Adam and Eve of what this life is going to look like. And then what does the serpent, what does Satan do? He, he comes in craftily and he lies. Did God really say that? Did, really, did God really mean it that way? That's his opening line. After God had spoken to Adam and Eve, the devil's opening line is, did God really say that? Is that how you're going to interpret it? And then he lies, where God said, you're going to die if you eat from this one tree. He says, no, you won't die if you eat from that tree. Just a straight lie. So he tries to undermine God's authority and God's word with that first opening line, and then he just lies straight to them. No, you won't die. And then he encourages them by saying, hey, hey, just go for it. And actually, if you go for it, uh, you'll know more than God. You'll be on his same level. And he does that so well by doubting God's goodness, kindness to them. Saying, no, God doesn't know best. You will know best. God's not for you. He's withholding from you. He's greedy. He's stingy. 
He's keeping this one tree away from this one tree away from you because because he's, that's that's what he's like. Go for it. Get that thing. You can do it. And Adam and Eve believe the anti-wisdom of the serpent and rebel against God. This is what I mean by demonic. Jesus said that the devil is the father of lies. So if you want to if you want to talk about spiritual warfare, let's begin with the lies that we believe and the things that we say about others and to others. That's spiritual warfare. What you say is a serious issue. Your words are powerful. I'll let it sink in by reading to you the pithy wisdom of multiple Proverbs, Proverbs 11.9. Think about the power of your words. With his mouth, the ungodly destroys his neighbor. Does he go to his neighbor, break into his neighbor's house, beat him? No, he destroys his neighbor with his words. Proverbs 12.18, there is one who speaks rashly, like a piercing sword. Your tongue can be like a sword stabbing people, cutting them. Think about the power on the other side, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So you can harm them, you can uh, hospitalize them, or you can heal them with your words, because words are powerful. 15.1, a gentle answer turns away anger, but a harsh word stirs up strife. So if you think that small campfire, what do you need? You stoke it a little bit? That's what he's saying. That's that's what this does. A harsh word stokes the fire, the fire of wrath. Like, yeah, let's get this going. Proverbs 26.20, without wood, fire goes out. Without a gossip, conflict dies down. I feel that. I don't know. I've read church history and the Israelites in the Old Testament. It's a a lot of our history. A little bit of conflict and then a gossip or two turns into destruction. Has charcoal for embers and wood for fire, so is a quarrelsome person for kindling strife. Oh, a gossip words are like choice food that goes down to one's innermost being. And you may be like, that, kind of, that was a weird way to end that proverb. What he's saying is, yeah, it, it feels good to hear gossip. Or let me remind you what it leads to, destruction, right? Why, why do we listen to gossip and not tell the person, hey, I don't know if I should hear this. I think you need to go talk to that person. Why? Because it's juicy. It's like Starburst. It's like, mm, I want to put that in my belly. I want to eat that. I want to hear more. Anyone else? Oh, and I can't wait to tell someone else. Why? Because they're gonna, it's good. It's like choice food. <laughs> I guess Starburst does not equate to choice food, but that's where I was. It was juicy. It's the only thing I could think of. But that's what it's like. It's what gossip is like. He's saying, but, but yeah, it feels that way. It tastes good. But without a gossip, conflict ties down. And the last one, Proverbs 18, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. 
So words are powerful to destroy or to build up. To destroy or to build up. So James' point is to show the power of the tongue by, by giving us these images, images of rudder and bits and fire. But, but he doesn't only give us the, the power of the tongue for us to feel the weight of our words. He also gives us some terrible news. We aren't that powerful to control our tongues. That's the third one. The human limits to taming the tongue. This is verse 7. This is terrible news. Every kind of animal, bird, reptile, and fish is tamed and has been tamed by humankind, but no one can tame the tongue. No one. I did my Greek work. No one means, you guessed it, no one. No one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Do you get this? Like the people have taught dogs to go get them a drink from the fridge and taught elephants to play soccer and taught dolphins to hit a ball through a hoop, but he's saying no one can tame the tongue. You can teach Rover to sit and roll over and play fetch, but you can't teach your tongue. You can't tame it. You can't control it. So much so that he calls it a restless evil, always active, busy to harm and curse full of deadly poison, full of deadly poison. Psalm 140 puts it this way, evil men make their tongues as sharp as a snake's bite. Vipers' venom is under their lips. This is what James is, is referring to. Your tongue is this tiny little, what, what Calvin said, a slender piece of flesh. It's packed full of deadly poison. And if you think about that, if, if, if you've, uh, uh, let's see, What's my reference? Wildcrats? Uh, I'm trying to think about older than that, yeah. If, man, Jack Hanna? There we go. There we go. That's, that's a different generation. There we go. Uh, if you think about this, if you've ever seen little creatures that are poisonous, there's this wild ratio of their size and how much poison they have to affect another animal. Like there's a spider, a tiny spider, that has enough poison in it to knock down a rhinoceros. What? <laughs> I don't know, God. I don't know if that's because of the fall or what, but that's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot. I say that to say that's what James is getting at with your tongue. It's tiny, but it's terrifying. It packs enough poison in it to wreck whole communities and nations. Sam Alberry writes, <laughs> in the search for weapons of mass destruction, we really only need to look in the mirror and open our mouths. Like that, that's what James is trying to get at with how much destructive power you have in your tongue. A weapon you cannot tame. And we know this. We've seen this. The verbal abuse the, the family members who haven't talked for decades because what they said in that fight back in the day. The stinging words of a parent who said something to you when you're a kid and it still haunts you to this day and reverberates through your ears to this day. So James is not giving us five tips to better communication. 
If that's what you came in looking for this morning, I'm sorry. I know we're saying wisdom, wisdom, wisdom a lot. But here's the wisdom. He's saying, you can't do this. That's wisdom. You can't do this. You need to desperately, but you can't. You can't tame your tongue. It's beyond your control because it's the outflow of your heart. So what is James trying to do? Is he, is he trying to discourage us? No. Is he trying to make you feel hopeless so you never try to grow in how you speak and, and communicate with others? No. He's humbling us. That's what he's doing. I will make the argument that actually this whole letter is leading up to the climax of James 4, 6 through 10, where he's been saying, uh, you've got this sin of favoritism. You don't care for the needy. You don't control your tongue. Your religion looks useless because, because you can't control your tongue. You're, unsta- you're stained from the world. And he just keeps going and going and going to regards to his tongue. You can't tame it. And all to the point of humble yourself before God. This is where we need to go. We need to see the extent of our evil words. We need to feel broken over what we've said and what we've not said. He's pushing us to be desperate and dependent. That's wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is what James is after. This is what he's doing in this passage pushing us to be desperate and dependent on God, that we come to the point where we see, yes, we need help from something beyond ourselves. We need help from above. But before we get there, he gives us one more hard truth. He says, like the double-minded man in chapter 1, there's a doubleness to our tongues. Verse 9, with the tongue, hear this doubleness. With the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in God's likeness. Blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. Does a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig tree produce olives? My brothers and sisters, or a grapevine, produce figs. Neither can a saltwater spring yield fresh water. And so to connect these back to chapter 1 verse 8 and actually 4 8 about the double-minded person what he's saying is the double-minded person is inconsistent in their faith trying to please God both like trying to both please God and the world and that's what James is concerned about for the churches he's writing to and I'm wholeheartedly agree or think that that's what the spirit is concerned for our church this double-mindedness this inconsistency, this desire to try to please God and the world at the same time, to be people who put faith in Jesus but express favoritism to the rich over the poor or to the people that look like us over those that don't, to to say, yeah, both and. Faith in Jesus and favoritism. Or people who put their faith in Jesus but fail to express the works of that faith, of genuine faith, that genuine faith produces. People who bless our Father on Sunday mornings, but curse our brothers who are made in the image of God. Now, he says this, 
blessing of God on Sunday and this cursing of a brother or sister on a Tuesday should not be. Jesus prohibited his disciples to curse others. He actually said, bless those who curse you. So this should not be. That's his appeal to us. It literally uh, means it is not necessary that these things should happen this way. Meaning, back to chapter 1, those who have been implanted with the word, those who have been transformed, have put their faith in Jesus, been transformed by the Spirit of God, should speak with wholeness and purity from that new heart, should bless God and build up others, should extol Jesus and encourage others, should worship Jesus the truth and speak the truth in love. Fig trees don't produce olives. A freshwater spring doesn't produce salt water on Monday and it's spring water on Tuesday. It doesn't have a schedule like that. It can't do it. Bad things can't produce good things. Pure hearts can't produce false, bitter, harmful words. So do you feel it yet? James is saying, if you have bitter, harmful, lying, deceptive, slandering words, you don't have a pure heart. Now, he's not saying that you're not a Christian. What he's saying is, you get to chapter 4, you need to purify your heart. You need to purify your heart. This whole letter is leading to this humility, humbling ourselves. So I'll just read it. James 4, verse 6. You can look at it with me. One page over. But he, God, gives greater grace. Therefore, he said, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. I think that's what all of this up to this point has been leading to. Family, humble yourself. And I'm not saying, because the Bible doesn't say this, pray for humility. I guess you can. It's always active. It's always actions like get on your face before God. See the weight of your sin before a holy God. Humble yourself. Lay down before him. See his majesty and his goodness and his perfection and see the vanity and brokenness of your heart and your words. Humble yourself. What this whole description is, is a description of repentance. Do you see it with me? Submit to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. Turn from sin. Turn to Jesus. Put off your evil speech. Put on words of life. Grieve your sin. Mourn your terrible words. Grieve your lies. Grieve your slander. Grieve your gossip. Grieve your denigrating words and purify your hearts. Turn from self-sufficiency and turn to this dependence, desperation, 
Turn from this arrogant heart and humble yourself before God. There's action to take. There's movement. And you shouldn't be surprised because that's what he said in chapter 1. You deceive yourself today. I'll, I'll be a little bold. You deceive yourself today if you hear this and do nothing with this. And I, I feel like I can be that bold because exactly what James 1 said. I'm not making something up. If you're a hearer only and not a doer, you deceive yourself. And who's, who's the father of deception? Father of lies? So I'll put it in starker terms. You have an option as you walk out of this building to walk the path of the demonic or walk the path of the Savior. There's action to take. But I'll tell you, this isn't a pull yourself up by your bootstraps message. This isn't a clean yourself up before you get to God. Because the path to James 4 is through James 3.17. And it says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. And I think when we read that, and we're going to get into it next week more, but when we read that, we ask, what is this wisdom? Like, please, James, get specific. Uh, unpack the three insights that I need for this. I think that's the wrong question. The right question is not what is this wisdom, but who is this wisdom? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.24, Jesus is the wisdom of God. In verse 30, goes, he goes on to say, Jesus became wisdom for us. Or in John 1's language, the word, the word, became flesh. And so when you look at James 3.17, can you see it with me? That's a description of Jesus. Jesus is from above and pure, peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without pretense. Jesus perfectly tamed his tongue by the power of the Spirit. And then he held his tongue. He was slow to speak when he was reviled and mocked on the cross. And then he took our poisonous tongues, our evil words and language upon himself and paid for that sin by dying in our place. He did not deserve the, crucif uh, the crucifixion for his evil words. We did. But he steps in and says, I'm the word, become flesh, and I will take all your evil words on my shoulders, and I'll pay for them. And then he rises from the grave, ascends to the right hand of the Father, where he reigns right now, and he sent the Holy Spirit to empower us to speak like him. To speak like him. To repent of our sinful words, and to turn to the word to turn to Jesus and to speak life like he spoke, pure, peace-loving, gentle, full of mercy, without pretense, full of good fruits. Three insights this morning is not the answer to your word problems. 
the word of God is the answer to your word problems. And so if you're not a Christian and you're hearing this, what I want you to feel and hear is that you're invited into this, that there's hope for you. What you need in all the evilness and the brokenness and the, the wake of destruction in the back of your life that you've come from where you've destroyed relationships that hurt people and tore them down, there's hope not within you, but above you, and his name is Jesus. And he came to you to rescue you and to give you a new heart because that's the only thing that will really change your words. You need the God-man to rescue you, to forgive you, to wash you clean, to purify you, and to reconcile you to the Father. And that if you are a Christian, as believers, we're called to follow the wisdom of God, Jesus. Now, I know we still have indwelling sin, and we're still tempted by the evil one. So this is war, but James is calling us to grieve our sinful words and evil desires, to mourn the destruction we've caused in our lives to confess we're stained, we're corrupted, to resist the devil and to turn to God, to rebuke the lies of the evil one, the, the father of lies, and listen to the father of the son through his word, the scriptures, to resist going to the well of anger for power and to go to the Holy Spirit for power, confessing our weaknesses and limitations and asking him for help and strength. And so I'll summarize this by just saying, I think what James wants us here, and, and I keep saying James, but I think you know what I mean by that. God wants us to hear, because this is breathed out by God. Because the tongue is powerful and destructive, we humble ourselves and repent. That's where James is leading us. The imagery I want to leave you, though, with is the imagery of two separate tongues. Your tongue set on fire by hell, like James says, scorching people. So this fire in your head or the flaming tongue brought on by the Holy Spirit in the day of Pentecost that leads the disciples of Jesus to praise God. The imagery of the fire in your head or the fire on your head. The fire in your head that is scorching other people or the fire on your head that is praising, extolling, exalting, glorifying, worship God and blessing others. And encouraging others. Not, not where we fake it through an hour, looks like an hour and a half on a Sunday, uh, uh, and then just go about our weeks. Destroying, discouraging, shaming, dishonoring everyone in our life. Not everyone, that, that, that's hyperbolic. But other people in our life that are made in the image of God. It should not be. It should not be. 
the Spirit of God came on them and empowered them in Acts 2 to bless God and shout the victory of Jesus and praise God. And so with humility and the power of the Spirit, that's our reality and that's our future. Blessing God and blessing others with our words. Extolling Jesus and encouraging others. Confessing God's greatness and caring for others. Not, not perfectly. But growing consistently by God's grace. That's what I see for us. That's what I see for our future. Not bite-biting and division and destruction, but that gentle, peace-loving full of mercy and good fruits without pretense. Building up, encouraging, helping, serving, blessing. May it be so. Father, I pray for it. I pray you would do it in us. I've seen you do it in us, and I, I, I ask you for more. <laughs> like you'll, you'll see later on, as you say later on, keep knocking. We don't have because we don't ask, and so we ask you to do this in us. And then to those defensive hearts, those arrogant hearts, those hot chests that are fighting right now, Lord, I pray that you would lead them in your kindness to humble themselves before you. In Christ's name I pray, amen.